Welcome to K-Drama School. I'm your host, Grace Jung, and class is now in session. wall cafe at 8 p.m in hollywood and on december 18th at 7 30 p.m i will be at the comedy chateau in north hollywood you can use the code medusa to get a discount and the ticket links for both shows are on my website at hj.com i also have a monthly supporter via anchor.fm you guys if you want you can donate directly to this podcast on a monthly basis via anchor FM. I was really happy to see this because I didn't exactly promote it, but someone decided to give me a monthly donation to me directly on their own accord. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. So that is awesome. You can be that awesome person. You can be that person who gives me more fuel to keep this engine running. Okay. Because it's December guys and Squarespace is going to be charging me like, I don't know, like several hundreds of dollars to update my website and uh, iris the software that i use to interview my guests they charge me 30 dollars every month and now that i'm not a student anymore ucla is no longer going to be paying for adobe and i have to edit on adobe and that's going to be taking like 30 or 40 dollars out of my bank account every month and i'm unemployed so if you were to donate directly to me then all of that would go to those expenses. And that would be super dope, man. That would be super dope. And thank you to the people who wrote to me, you guys. Like, I was so happy to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you to those who made specific Korean drama requests uh, for coverages from me. It, it was really nice to hear from you. I'm glad that so many of you are doing well. And I'm glad that so many of you are watching shows that interest you, that keep you feeling alive. That's great. And if you haven't already, you guys, I, I haven't made this announcement in a while. If you haven't already, please subscribe to K-Drama School on YouTube because I post videos of every single episode on YouTube, which you can find on kdramaschool.com. If you just go to the episodes uh, part of the menu and you'll see just a whole list of every single episode that's ever been on. And uh, we're almost going to be at our 50th episode. Can you believe that? Can you believe that I did 50 episodes. <laughs> Can you fucking believe that shit? I can't because around this time last year, I was freaking out. I was freaking out about to launch K-Drama School as a podcast all by myself, not knowing jack shit about podcasting. Uh, I hadn't edited on Adobe Premiere in years, but so many good things came out of that, you know, because like while I was editing my podcast videos, I realized like I could be editing my goddamn movie that I put on hold for five years. Like, why didn't I, you know, so so it, it inspired a lot of uh, things in me and it sort of got me to execute all these things that I, I was afraid of, you know, like I was afraid of um, taking this on. I was I was terrified. I was a nervous wreck. And. I'm glad that I pushed through and fought through and overcame. And I'm glad that I'm bringing this, this 
podcast show to you guys on a weekly basis. So thank you to all of you guys who listen and thank you to you guys who write to me and thank you to you guys who donate and support and share and like and subscribe and blah, 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 blah. Thank you. It's an awesome present. We'll be discussing Reply 1994 because I discussed the other two Reply series on my podcast, but I haven't gotten to this one yet. And Reply 1994 is a comedy written by Yi Jung, who also wrote Reply 1997 and Reply 1988. And it is directed by Shin Won-ho, the same two writer, director, collaborators of all the Reply series. Okay, and you have the same people playing the protagonist's parents. So you have Sung Dong-il and Yi Il-hwa. Okay, they play mom and dad of the protagonist. And this show aired on TVN in late 2013. That was a while ago. I mean, like 2022 is just around the corner. It's almost 10 years ago. So it's kind of crazy, actually. Wow, the show came out a while ago. Okay, what I love about Reply 1994 is how it's reminiscent of Korean 90s sitcoms. And they were typically set in a hasuk setting. Hasuk is Korean for boarding house, which is reserved for college students. And this is very common in South Korea. You have students who come from all over the country and live in one house while they're going to school. Okay, and that's where the meals are served. It's prepped by the boarding house's family, typically. And I don't know why, but it was always like college students, hasuk, and sitcom. Like that was like a thing in the 90s. And so I think this series kind of harkens on that trend because it's set in the year 1994. In the 90s, the biggest sitcoms that were known is like Three Guys, Three Girls. Nam just hit, yo just hit. And it was kind of a ripoff of Friends at the time, which also has three women and three men. And Hingjin is another one. Hingjin uh, came out, I guess, late 90s, early 2000s. And that was also about college students living in a boarding house. I've said this before, but back in the day, those sitcoms tended to be a gateway for young and up-and-coming stars to make their television debut. Many of them were originally singers or models, and they just started to showcase their acting abilities through these sitcoms. So these sitcoms played a very important role for a lot of these stars in the media ecosystem in South Korea. Your main protagonist is Hong Najong, played by Ko Ara. Koara is a, she's an amazing actress. She started out as a model and she has very beautiful hazel eyes. And I love her energy and persona on this show. She's very likable. And she was in a really bizarre Korean drama that's on Netflix uh, in the US. It's called Black. It's a train wreck of a show, but she's she's quite good. But Koara won recognition for her acting chops way back in 2006 when she was in the SBS show Snowflower, along with our K-drama queen, Kim Hee-e. You also have the actor Jung Woo playing a character nicknamed as Garbage. In fact, all the boys on this show have nicknames, and it's to mask their actual names and their identities because the implication on this show just like it is with all the reply series is that the girl will marry one of the boys okay so it's like she's the only girl and there are all these boys and she's eventually going to marry one so that's how it goes you have the k-pop star paro from b1a4 he is uh, a character on this show and i believe he plays a closet queer character but unfortunately they really sort of erase his queerness or dial down his queerness, then they almost treat it like a 
like a phase you know and um actually if you look at queer literary discourse from academia and queer scholarship that the the treatment of queerness as a phase is typically found in those up-and-coming sort of dramas um well these are narratives typically found in literature but it's like uh, a, a child who is entering their adolescent phase go through this queer sort of liminality like they're they're still exploring their gender identity so you have like a lot of tomboy characters who are teenagers or you have uh young men who are just kind of questioning whether or not they are into girls yet i mean it, it's it's very bizarre, but they treat it like a tempor like a temporary thing. Paru's character, he's playing this this young man who is struggling with his gay identity and his feelings and affections for an older uh, colleague, uh, an older student. But he eventually gets over it, right? Like that's always the oh, like thank goodness, like they treat it like this resolution. But of course, that's not how you know queerness works. In any case, uh, there is another actor named Yu Yeonseok. He plays Chibong, the pitcher of Yeonsei's baseball team. Quick shout out to Yeonsei. I was a research scholar at Yeonsei for one year during my Fulbright stint in Seoul back in 2009. So I see you, Yeonsei. And Yeonsei and Korea University or Koryade have this rivalry that's similar to UCLA and USC's rivalry. Interestingly, Yeonsei's colors are blue and white, and UCLA's colors are blue and yellow. And both Korea University and USC's colors are red. Isn't that funny? I mean, that's interesting only to me. It's not interesting to you. Yoo Yeon-suk is also an actor you might recognize. He plays the younger version of the villain in that movie, Old Boy. He's very versatile. You have Kim Sung-gyun playing a college student on this show, but of course he plays the goofy dad in Reply 1988. And it's a big jump. He's very versatile. This show plays a lot of Hotteji's music. For people who have a 90s nostalgia, they definitely recognize the music that this show plays over and over again, covered by artists that are more well-known in our contemporary likes, Hung Shi-gyung, Roy Kim, B1A4, Dia, and others. I find this show really interesting in the way that it explores extreme fandom. So you have the character Cho Yunjin, played by Min Tohee, who is obsessed with Hateji and boys. And she takes extreme measures to express her fandom, like going on a hunger strike when she finds out that Hateji is going to retire, or going to Hateji's house, or going to his dressing room, right? Like zero boundaries. Back when the Beatles were popular, well, not popular. I mean, the Beatles are always popular. Back when the Beatles were popping off, okay, when they were first emerging, the fandom that ignited over their music was like, like, un, it was, it was like nothing anybody had seen before. And that similar phenomenon was happening in the early mid 90s with Hateji and Boys, and Korea had never seen anything like that before. So whilst Hateji was at their highest success point, a lot of Korean news outlets would release ridiculous stories on how Hateji's music was like devil worship. They would speculate on Hateji's sexuality. They would make all kinds of weird rumors and then put it out in the news. And it would create this sort of moral panic with the parents. And the parents would be like, you know, uh, like arguing with their teenage kids or their college kids about like what they listen to, what they wear, blah, blah, blah. 
And I, I just, I, I don't understand it, honestly. I, I don't understand why it had to be that way, but that's how it used to be. In the early 90s in South Korea, that's how it went down, okay? Hattiji's group retired and they disbanded in the mid-90s, I think 1996, but he returned to pursue a solo career in 1998 with New Metal Rock. And I remember this one song called Orange, which shocked the hell out of me when I first heard it because it was so drastically different from... Uh, his earlier albums that he did with the group. Many of you know that Yang Hyun-seok, the former CEO of YG Entertainment, was part of the Satejian Boys group. Yang is in a whole heap of trouble in light of the Me Too movement in Korea and with former trainees coming out and saying how he'd threatened them and mistreated them. I mean, he's a goddamn mess. I'm not going to get into it. You, re you read the news, so I'll leave that work to you. You also see the kinds of TV shows that these uh, characters are watching. So they're watching the show called Majimak Seungbu, The Last Game. And it's the first Korean drama you see the family watching all together, right? And Chang Dong-gun is in that show. And that, that was a really popular drama back in the day. And it focused on basketball players. And this show also explores the IMF crisis and how it impacted families in the late 90s, especially the job market, especially the young people's dreams and visions and goals and yada, yada, yada. The economy in South Korea and the difficulty that the middle class faced back then, that has not really changed to this day. I'm going to talk about that some more in the next episode of this podcast. So let's hold off on that conversation until next week. All in all, I really, really love this show. I liked the diversity it had in terms of regions and dialect, regional competition and rivalry between Jeollado and Gyeongsangdo. Okay, that's like a real rivalry. All right, the non-Seoul folks and their defensiveness whenever Seoul people called them country folk. Uh, I think that's hilarious. The 90s fashion, okay? The World Cup games, the the rah-rah attitude that Koreans had overall back then. It's all fiery and fun, and I dig it. I will say, though, I did not appreciate this show's homophobia, especially with the uh, guest cameo appearance with actor Hong Seok-chun. Hong Seok-chun is the only openly um, gay celebrity in South Korea at this time, and the the show makes this really bizarre assumption that gay men will just hit on anybody and everybody who is male. And it's just sad to me that um, Hong felt the need to even play this role based on how it was scripted. But this is like a very typical stereotype that that queer men are sub are subjected to, like, you know, the assumption being, well, all gay men are hypersexual and all gay men are predatorial. You know, like these are um, stigmas that the gay community faces. And it, it's just it's ridiculous that it continues. But it's got to stop. There's so much we learn about South Korea's recent globality. So like in episode five, we see the family sitting together eating a melon. OK, like because um, Chibong, because he's like so successful and he's a celebrity, la, 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 he brings a melon to the house. Right. And they share this melon together. And it's like a whole big event for everybody because it's like, you know, they're like, oh, I'm eating a melon for the first time. I've never had a melon like this. La, da, da. The melons were very rare back then. And bananas were also rare. I think I talked about this on this podcast. When I was talking about Reply 1988, but bananas were this exotic fruit that was very, very rare and hard to come by in Korea. So you know how there's banana milk? Like if you're, if you're Korean or if you've been to Korea, 
if you've been to like a Korean spa or sauna, they always have banana milk there. And banana milk was invented by this milk company called Pingure, invented, and they invented it in the 1970s, this thing called banana milk, because bananas were a privileged fruit that only the wealthy could afford to eat. And Pingure, uh, the, the same company that invented banana milk, created this ice cream bar called Melona, which is a melon-flavored popsicle, and it makes melons accessible to all income levels, right? And um, that was happening in the mid-90s. So it's not too long ago when melons were considered exotic. It's not too long ago when bananas were considered exotic in Korea. And it's amazing how we in the United States or we in developed nations today take for granted so many things. So like even something as simple as limes, limes, okay? 10 years ago, Every time I ordered a tequila in Korea, they would always give it to me with a lemon. Like there were just no limes. Limes were hard to come by. It was uh, 10 years ago, hard to come by fresh blueberries. You couldn't find just like a carton of blueberries in Korea. Today, you could find them. They're a lot more common, a lot more accessible. They're still expensive though. So if you look at the history of fruit companies in the United States and the militarism and the neocolonialism that Americans exercised in Latin America for things like bananas, even with things like bananas, we can see traces of coloniality and u.s empire and imperialism but isn't that funny isn't that funny that south korea associated these kinds of fruits with wealth and america even though these were technically <laughs> stolen or taken away from latin american countries the other thing i love about reply 1994 is how much they play mariah carey's without you over and over again like it's like one of my favorite songs of all time. I sing that song every time I go to Norebang with my Korean friends. You can ask my Korean friends. They'll be like, yeah, Grace sings Mariah Carey's Without You a lot. Today's guest is Dr. Todd Kushigemachi. He is a lecturer at UCLA in the Department of Film, Television, and Digital Media Studies. He is a friend and former colleague of mine at UCLA. I met Todd back in 2015 when he first moved to Los Angeles and started out as a wee little master's student. And he was always really nice to me. He was always super helpful whenever I had questions. He and I went to see a lot of movies together. We had many lunches together and we taught a few courses together as fellow TAs. And I always learn a lot from Todd. Okay, I like how dedicated Todd is to his students and his teaching. And I really like how rigorous he is in his research. And he's a stand-up guy through and through. And folks, I do have the flashcard series for this show and it's going to be at the tail end of this episode right after my conversation with Todd and it's going to be with fellow comedian Nick Borsellino. He's very funny, very sweet guy and I shot our video segment in front of um, a comedy club today and it's very noisy and it's outdoors so please excuse the noise level but it is a good little flashcard series so enjoy that. But for now let's talk to Dr. Todd Kushigamachi. Cool. Good to see you, buddy. How are you? It's it's good to see you. Are you uh, are we are we now live? Are we now recording? Yeah, we're recording. Not How live, exciting. but I know not live. Yeah, but, um, I'm pretty good. Pretty good. It's the end of uh, almost the end of like the quarter slash semester. So yeah, things are dude. wrapping up. Looking forward what, to the winter. Where are you teaching right now? I'm teaching 6A History of the American Motion Picture at nice. UCLA again, and then yeah. I'm still finishing up that class at Woodbury University, Television mm. and Race in America. Mm. I've, I've seen, I have to ask a question. I've seen yeah. your studio uh, 
on the videos of your past things. Is that just like a decked out room in your apartment or? Yeah. <laughs> this is my closet, dude. Okay, that's what, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my decked out room. I live in a studio, bro. I have like no space. Um, you know what's interesting about living in these like smaller units is you have to buy extra storage units in order to make more space. That's like mm, the weird okay. ironic thing I realized. Like, yeah, that's the urban life thing. It's like, where do I put my shit, you know? Mm -hmm. And sadly, it never occurs to me to just be like, how about you just stop buying shit, Grace? <laughs> you don't have the room for it, you know? Yeah. yeah, no, the reason why I ask is because it, it it's quite professional looking. So the first time I saw it, I was like, is she like renting a room? Um, but now I just dispelled yeah. that potential illusion for other Yeah, technically, other so. technically, I am renting a room. I'm renting oh, that's this true. entire unit. And yeah. this is just one segment of it. Yeah, to be uh, honest, I am not super, I have not delved into the world of podcasts that much. I think You don't I, listen to podcasts? Not really. Um, the only wow. podcast. I have a podcast app, but literally the only thing I listen to is NPR. Wait, wait, don't tell me. I think I yes. I've talked about a lot. Uh huh. Uh, yeah. The, so it's basically a radio show that happens to be distributed in the form of a podcast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just it, it seems like a a whole Pandora's box of like. <laughs> uh, it for is. Better or yeah. It actually really is. It's like trying to find a podcast to get into is like trying to uh, get into a new series on any one of these millions of platforms that have mm -hmm. their own original content. It's like very overwhelming because there's so many podcasts during the pandemic because all these comics just were going bonkers because they couldn't get stage time. They all started podcasts. Like it was like the great upsurge of podcasts during the pandemic and I being one of them. Yeah, and I was about to ask. I think that sounds like you. Is that is that what happened? The, I was, yours is yeah. Yours is focused didn't it also come up around the same time that you were teaching your K-drama class? And is that yes. sort of why it's sort of the the framing of it? Kind of. Like, well, the K-drama class was in the spring, so it was going to start in January. But I started my podcast, I started recording it in December. But mm -hmm. I had been planning it since the fall. Like, So all through the fall, I was planning it. I was originally supposed to do it with some other person, like one other person. But like... Yeah, it's just we couldn't work together. I was like, yeah, I have to do this alone. And uh, yeah, like, you know, I, I was just kind of thinking about this recently. I was like, why did I do this podcast? Like other than like the like more obvious reasons, the surface reasons being like, oh, it's about Korean dramas and I know Korean dramas. And also I'm a comic, so I, I want a podcast. And other than those reasons, I think I had to show myself that I'm capable of doing something that is um, that is something I want to do, but it's intimidating because I don't know anything about it, like how to do it. All of it is like from scratch. All of it is like, I mean, buy, I had to buy all this shit to buy this. I had to buy this, you know, and this wasn't the first mic I used. This wasn't the first headphones I used. You know, a lot of it was trial and error. And like uh, it, a lot of it like every step was full of fear and self-questioning and self-doubt and anxiety. But I pushed through all of that and I did it anyway and I launched mm -hmm. it anyway. And I think I just needed to show myself that I'm capable of doing something that I want to do, but I'm afraid of doing. 
you know? And so I would say that's the re- more of the reason why. I think this is, speaks to a pretty big difference between the two of us is that you're like, when you hit those things that you're interested about, you're like, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to challenge myself. And I'm always like, I walk the opposite direction. I'm like, okay, nice try. That looks good for other people. We're just very different in that respect. I'm an overly cautious person and you're a very ambitious person, which is a, a good thing. Well, I mean, I think there are benefits to both, you know, and I don't, I, you're not overly cautious. I mean, I would say you take risks in other aspects, you know? Yeah. In some I ways. mean, what did you th- what did you say? Like trying to be an academic right now is a huge risk. No, that's true. That's true. Um, it really is. Uh, I mean, cause I mean this week, uh, this was, we were, this was literally the strike week. Uh, I had to send out emails, uh, to my students at UCLA because the strike was authorized, um, uh, on Wednesday and Thursday for UC lecturers. Um, the adjunct strike. Yes. Use adjunct strike for UC lecturers. And it was called off Wednesday morning, I think. Damn. <laughs> and so which speaks to, you know, just like the precarity of like, you know, adjunct life. Um, and it was, it was, I think those, um, uh, even though the strike didn't go through a valuable learning lesson, because even in my email, I had to explain like, I am a lecturer and you might not know this distinction, but most of your classes are taught by people who are technically like gig workers. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's one of those things that I think some students know and maybe they know in the back of their minds, but they're not aware of the fact that, yeah, most yeah. of us like, don't have health oh, insurance yeah. from UCLA or the fact that like when they tell, are you going to teach a class next year? I'm like, I don't know. I have I no hope so. idea. Maybe, yeah. but. God willing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's um well okay so the strike is the strike didn't happen then or it it did happen what's I think it was I think with all strikes the the ultimate goal is to force the hand of um yeah. somebody perceived to be not negotiating good faith and so okay. and I think basically there were like marathon negotiations on Monday and Tuesday yeah. with uh the president's I think was it Drake um his team and then yeah and so basically they ended up like. I think it was like early morning Tuesday slash uh, early morning Wednesday slash late Tuesday that yeah. they they came to an agreement to basically avert the strike. I think that's what the purpose was always with the strike is to try to get not get to that point. Um, mm. But yeah, yeah. You know, I'm glad that um, adjuncts have a union. I wish. I mean, I think there is like it's like North American like. Uh, lecturers or adjuncts union or like organization or collective i think something of that of that kind of thing exists but um i wish that would be stronger and i wish everybody who graduates um from grad school it just becomes like privy to that like i mm-hmm. I, I wish that would just be part of that whole process being like once you graduate instead of just being okay you've graduated good luck like which is what <laughs> professors do yeah. Uh, instead of doing that, like being like, okay, here are the steps, like join this union or go to this organization, you know, know your rights, understand the 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 lay of the land, and this is how it's going to be, so that um, so that all univer- like all adjuncts feel empowered to know that like as a collective, once all of us walk out, the universities are fucked because. Yeah. A lot of these professors who are tenured are not in classrooms. They're sitting in admin positions and they're not teaching and taking, making a lot of money from it. But these adjuncts who are paid ridiculously low, 
like very, very low pay. Like they can't survive on this kind of pay, kind of pay, no health care, no benefits, no retirement, nothing. And, and, and for grad students to just go and be like, okay, yes, yes, yes. You know, like bowing their heads being like, oh, I'm so grateful for this, oh, for the morsels of food you're giving. Rather than do that, to literally be like, if all of us said no and walked out, they'd all be screwed, you know? Like, I, 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 wish, I wish that would be part of the programming too. I, that's yeah. important. I kind of feel like the system is weird too, because I feel like if one day we just said, like, let's pretend, let's start all over again. We all took a step yeah. back. Right. And the university thought through it. They would probably find a way that would be that would allow not only for you know more sustainable careers for adjuncts and for yeah. you know for, I shouldn't say adjuncts for lecturers, right, um, right. but then it would be a system that runs smoother. But I think just because it's always moving so fast, they're always just trying to plug in holes of like it's like um, instead of re replacing the pipes, they just keep on. Um, so yeah, it's just one of those things that I think even yeah. the UCs, it's not like they would benefit from a system that was more sustainable than, you know, even my, even my Woodbury gig, that was a job. Luckily it was, I mean, it was a good opportunity, I think for, um, the other person, I think they got offered a more tenure track job or a job with a tenure track possibility. But then as a result, you have to then bring in someone last minute and it's like, yeah, I think we wouldn't have to have those last minute assignments if we had more sustainable more stable things for people in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, part of that thinking does stem from this belief, this ridiculous belief that arts and humanities um, courses are not valuable, mm -hmm. that they're not viable. But the fact is they are, they're very necessary. You know, like I remember um, when I was an undergrad, were you an English major as an undergrad or film major? I was a journalism major. Oh, right. Um, That's right. You worked at Variety but, and stuff. And all, I have technically have a bachelor's of science in journalism, <laughs> right. which is weird, but yeah. <laughs> right, right. That's funny. Um, so you're a scientist. Oh, that's so <laughs> funny. You know what, though? Journalists, they kind of are scientists in a way. I think that's what the hope is always, right? Because the, if they're like you know the objectivity the the pro, you know sort of the way that's always the myth of journalism of course but um that whole, i feel like journalism as a whole entire industry and field needs to be upturned honestly mm. uh like i'm gonna just go off track real quick i was interviewed a bunch of times by journalists the last like month or so because of squid game right oh okay and <laughs> you're the go-to korean drama person now you're like I guess for Squid Game, yeah. it's like the only Korean drama that anybody gives a shit about for some reason. But uh, yeah. they, the questions they ask me are so stupid, and so like they try to pretend like they're not motivated by their own personal biases. But the way mm. that they frame their questions, it's so obvious and blatant how their biases are embedded in there. You know, mm -hmm. like, like, okay, uh, in Berlin, there's this, um, it's like a German NPR. So if you were living in Germany, you'd be okay. listening to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. It's German's public radio. And they, they were, the interviewer was like, is a social, con socially aware or socially conscious TV shows, like Korean dramas, like, is this like a new thing? Like, um, and I was like, what? Like what <laughs> um 
he's like, yeah, like, you know, I mean, for instance, you know, like, you know, like, like romantic dramas. I know a lot of Korean dramas are like romantic dramas. I was like, you don't think romantic comedies have social awareness? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was like, well, and I was like, I, I was like, that that says more about you right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I would, it do, it sounds more like that person didn't do, I mean, I, I don't know the person and I don't want to make assumptions, but yeah. usually the journalists, like the way yeah. I, I was tra- trained, at least you're like, supposed to yeah. over-prepare. Um, uh, and so like this person, yeah. un- this person did not prepare. This like Underprepared. Yeah. Very I think that's the bigger issue. Uh, yeah. And it doesn't make me feel good. And it doesn't make me want to, like, it doesn't make me excited when the journalists keep saying, yeah, like, obviously you're the expert on this. and I know nothing about this. And when, when he presents every single question, starting with that in the beginning, <laughs> it makes me want to disrespect him blatantly and be like, mm-hmm. if you don't know jack shit about this, are you even interested in this? Was it just an assignment given to you? Is this whole discussion a waste of time? I also didn't like the way he was like, uh, like, so do you mind recording like your voice with your own equipment on your end? There wasn't like, there was, it wasn't like, please. It wasn't like, oh, I'm sorry, but, but you know, it would help if, it, it was just like very, like, just, just do this. Use your equipment and do this. And that pissed me off too. It's like, what if I don't fucking want to, you know? Or what if I don't have equipment? I mean, that's not the case, but it's it was just like, I didn't like his sense of entitlement, I guess. Mm. I, I think that sort of got us off on the wrong foot. And I just didn't like how his questions were implying that romantic comedies couldn't possibly have social awareness or be, yeah, like socially conscious. Because fucking romantic comedies or soaps written by women in Korea, most of them are written by women, mm-hmm. always, always question the status quo. Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. Like every single romantic Korean drama is about saying no to the man. And like his question was so like absurd and it showed such a huge blind spot that I was just like, I was like annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> so was this for a broadcast format like this is would be it would have been for radio or, or yeah like, it would have been for radio like wow. the, way, the way they do it is like this is germany so what they do is they'll take interviews and then they'll dub it into german so they have oh, to go yeah. and translate and they dub it so some late some german woman is gonna be speaking like me basically and um yeah it was just the and making, I just, yeah. making you sound less annoyed. You're like, yeah, I'm <laughs> all sure. your inflections have been Oh, removed. God, it's all gone. It's all gone. Yeah. No, I, I was just curious because I felt like if it was sometimes in print journalism, I can understand, like, they're just asking questions to get you to say certain things that can fit yeah. into the story. Yes. But that's really bad if in, like, a, in, a, in a context where you have to have a conversation, they didn't come in prepared. Um, yeah. I remember I once had, I can't remember who it was. Um, but uh, uh I can't, maybe it was a student actually um, who talked about how like when they got interviewed, they felt used. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like they kind of go in there, they get what they need, and then they're like, they "Okay, can. bye. Yeah, okay, thanks. Peace out." Um, which I think in when you're dealing with people like 
you know, celebrities or politicians. Yeah. That, that, that's what they're used to. And they probably prefer that. But when you're speaking to people who are, you know, just who don't have a, have a publicist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who don't yeah. have the PR training. Right. Because mm-hmm. like, as you say, celebrities and politicians, they have a publicist, they have a PR agent who trains them in how to deal with all kinds of questions, all kinds of scenarios. But it's like, I'm just I'm some chick, you know, who does a bunch of things. I don't know. I just decided I was like, I'm going to be a lot more selective when I say yes to interviews and stuff, you know, like a lot more selective because it takes a lot out of me like emotionally and mentally because the way that they're conducting it like i just see the problems already just based on how they're asking me questions Mm -hmm. and like the way i answer i answer it like why would you ask (laughs) (laughs) so not cooperative (laughs) like i'm so not cooperative i'm sure they're having a hellish time too they're like why won't she just answer it yes and no because i'm like not built like that i'm like Mm -hmm. you're avoiding all the nuances and all the ambiguities of this layer here and it's like annoying the bejesus out of me let me give you the full context you know (laughs) and that was the other thing he was like i listened to your podcast and i liked what you were saying about it so can you talk more about i was like I was like, I already answered that on my podcast. It's like, you could just literally rip that soundbite from my podcast and insert it. Like, why are we re- like rehashing this here right now? It, anyway, mm-hmm. that's my point. I, I feel like journalism should be totally changed, like in every yeah. which way. I, remember, I still remember this one conversation we had once where I can't remember what the context of the conversation was, but you said basically, <laughs> you were basically describing your anarchy view of how the world should be. <laughs> And you then said that I would abolish journalism and the main means of communication would be like conversation, which, and I remember, and I remember I stood up, I'd been, I'd been brainwashed uh, properly into being a good, no, we need a a, information. Yeah. 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 But I still remember that. I was like, that's very interesting. I think it was extreme. I was like, I wouldn't, there wouldn't even be phones. You would literally have to (laughs) walk to your neighbor's house and look at them in the eye. Like it would have mm. to be like that, you know what I mean? Like, um, but there is a part of me that still believes in that. Like, I still very much believe in that kind of thing. Um, but you know, the the upside for me, at least with media, is that like I get to be a lot more selective when it comes to how I want to interact with people. You know, because mm-hmm. like I'm sure you can relate. Like, there's I'm like there's a side of me that's enormously introverted. And um, if I don't want to deal with people, like a lot of people at once by like going out and like, you know, cause with that you have less control, right? Like mm-hmm. all these people. But uh, if I just want to talk to somebody, like one person that I feel the most safe with or somebody that I know won't bring me down today or won't stress me out, then I know who to contact and just say hello because we are social creatures and we have to have social interactions, you know? So I guess that is the upside to it. Uh, but of course, there are like all these other downsides to selective contact and information and media as well. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I still I still dream about that that kind of <laughs> world, man. <laughs> I well, I like. I mean, I I think like journalism is important. I do, I do, I have very much shied away from social media these days. I'm pretty much yeah like, not on social media anymore. Good for you, yeah. because how do I you mean, feel? How do you feel? I mean, better? it's been a it's been a while. For, I think so. I think a big the the straw that broke the camel's 
back for me was uh, the t- the 2016 election right. uh, and like misinformation and yeah. then just that kind of stuff is just really irksome to me. But then yeah. also just even sur- like it goes back to that that one on one thing is much better. Like you can talk to somebody and then yeah. you're going to say it in a way that was like this is for this person. But yes. like back in the day when I would like go on some random like I like I don't know if I had some like snarky tweet I'd put up or something. Sure. Then I'd always be like, "What did did anybody say anything?" Not in a like a I needed validation, but it's like, did I upset anybody or like what uh, is this person gonna say? Yeah, am I gonna have to get into a, a Facebook debate about this? Yeah, and it's so those, it's like yeah, throwing out a toxic potentially toxic thing to see who's gonna bite and you know whose yeah. mind am I gonna change today? <laughs> like yeah. that kind of well, thing. it's not even that. It's like yeah. in the in the moment I I. I think part of it is a lot of times with social media, people are saying things just for themselves, right? Yeah. They're just like putting it out there. And yeah. then once it's out there and then I realize, oh, someone could read this and right. disagree with me in a way. It's not even like I want to change your mind. It's not even like I want to start that fight, but then it just happens. And huh. so, and, and also in general, even when I do post on social media, it's just, I mean, back in the day, I used to be like, I think... Uh, people used to think of me as a contrarian, and I think I did maybe cultivate that personality to an extent. Uh, yeah, you, intentionally you or did not. Have that. You did have that side to you. Yeah. Um, I remember, like, you wrote something like, <laughs> "I've had." <laughs> you're like, what is this? You're like, I've had In-N-Out burgers and Shake Shack, and my opinion is that In-N-Out burgers are superior, or something like that. You're like, In-N-Out burgers are better. Like, I don't think that's. Said. I don't think that was me. It's possible though. I'm not going to actually probably before this you. year would have have I'm not this sure if that a, was me. This was a few years ago. It was definitely you. And I was like I was like okay, I was like I like it in out burgers, but I was like in and out fries taste like shit. And Shake Shack fries are just slightly better and therefore I would go to Shake Shack. And um yeah, my I big just, thing yeah. That would probably still be my preference, but isn't uh isn't In and Out like anti vaccine mandate? Well, In and Out is also a very Christian organization. Yes, <laughs> which unfortunately also means these days highly political, right? Because yeah, like the, yeah, the, the contemporary evangelical Christianity has basically thrown in their lot with the um with the right, the Republican right, in a way that doesn't actually make sense in terms of the political and religious ideology matching up is not inherent. But yeah, that's my big thing about in and out these days is that they're very uh, against the the vaccine mandates, especially in California. Yeah. And so the, and then I'm like, eh. I haven't you had Chick-fil-A in years. I will say that. <laughs> yeah, I haven't had Chick-fil-A since I was in Georgia. But I I haven't uh, had In-N-Out burgers in a long time only because those drive-through lines are just way too fucking long and, and mm. I'm just like it's just not worth it. As much as I love their burgers, it's just not for me sitting in that drive-through line is just not worth it anymore. So that's why I don't go. But yeah. you know, it's funny like this whole church and church and state thing. It's like it was never ever separate like church was always part of a politicized Mm. forever like Mm -hmm. i I don't i don't know why people believe this to be a segregated thing it's not it's like oh my god it goes way back to the 
to the beginning of America to 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 Rome, like it's way back, you know. And, and so, um, yeah, I just I don't buy into the the separation of these institutions. It's to me, it's That's always had a mutual. It was a marriage. It was always a marriage. For sure. I think, no, in terms of, of course, absolutely, the yeah. ro role of religion in the state. I mean, of course, like the Crusades and, you know, yeah. just going back to those types of things. Yeah. I think I was thinking more about just what's interesting to me is sort of the way in which the alignment of like um, uh, evangelical Christianity by and large, not entirely, yeah, but it's almost like the politics dictate the theology um, yeah. Like the party politics did take theology in a way right. that doesn't always make organic sense to me if you actually have like read the Bible or something. Exactly. So it's, it's, that's what's more interesting to me. But you're you're yes. totally right, of course. Um, even yeah. like the the idea that the founding fathers were all believers is like it's true, <laughs> but most of them were weren't they like deists, which is like like slightly different from like yeah. what we think of as Christian Christianity yeah. Yeah. And in terms of its religious beliefs. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, Deists just... and like <laughs> Freemasons and like, yes. you know, the whole thing, you know, we know what else they were into. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who fucking knows? Eyes wide shut. Uh, da Vinci code. Hello. Like, it's like, what? Who fucking knows? Who cares? It's like, it was their own personal lives. Right. Um, National all treasure. Of it is National treasure. Nicholas Cage. Hello. Yeah. Right. Like that mm -hmm. was their life. Tom yes. Hanks. That was their life. It is like, it, it's, um, all of it is a uh, projection and gossip and it's mm -hmm. like, who knows, but Absolutely. ultimately, ultimately, right. And I'm sure you'd agree. It's like, um, spirituality is mm -hmm. for one's own, um, personal freedom. Like they want to feel less burdened by the pain and the drudgery of life. Mm -hmm. And, that's why they pursue uh, spirituality, which is oftentimes found in religious institutions. And sadly, a lot of these religious institutions, because they are so closely uh, related to political institutions and economic institutions, their, their guidance and leadership starts to muddle the vision of what spiritual uh, living and practice and rituals are. And, you know, it saddens me greatly. Like, um, I mean, I don't know. Did you grow up in a Christian household or no? Yes, very you much did. so. Um, I grew up in, it's actually, I don't know if it's technically, I didn't even realize this until recently. It's yeah. technically not a um, evangelical Christian denomination. Okay. It's American Baptist, not to be confused with the wow. much more conservative Southern Baptist. Oh, um, interesting. So it's a different denomination. Um, but yes, I grew up in a Christian household. Uh, so yes, I think that's why in particular, I'm always thinking about sort of the, the relationship between yeah. religion and politics. Um, yeah. Uh, and sort of the way in which it doesn't always make sense. It's sort of uh, arbitrary. Like to me, like the whole thing about, I feel like there's this idea of, I think there was a lot of, I mean, because of this alignment of politics and religion, a lot of people in certain faith-based communities were like, you know what, I don't need to get the vaccine. I don't need to wear a mask. God will protect me. Which, you know, if, if people believe that, it, it's, it's hard to change their mind. But I right. also like, even if you just think biblically, 
Noah still had to build the ark. Like, you know what I mean? Like sometimes you have to put a step forward. You're asked to do something to protect yourself. Um, you know, and, right. and, so like, and, and remember that everybody thought Noah was crazy. So it's just, you know, it's, it's like these types of things where I'm like, yeah, that's not even biblical. This idea that God will protect me if I do nothing. That's like, that's, huh. that's not, that's not what it says there. <laughs> I don't right. know. That, this is right. why this stuff really bothers me. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the other thing is like when people are seeking that kind of spiritual freedom, they're coming from oftentimes a place of hardship, trauma, mm. poverty, difficulty and therefore when they come in to religion they're often in a place of resignation and surrender and so mm-hmm. they're totally open like this wide open because they're like i'm at a total loss i'm putting i'm giving it all up to god and when a person with a motivation enters that kind of being it can mm-hmm. be very dangerous right mm-hmm. if and when that leader says to this person well god forgives you god is here for you here's a donation from our church to help you out with your medical expenses or your children's clothes or whatever because christianity is based on a lot of charitable um a charitable ideology and charity is a big part of christian uh the christian doctrine yeah and they're like oh my god god saved me i will do anything for god well, who's my vision of God? Who's my, well, it's this person right here. And this person is telling me that the vaccine is wrong, that it's anti, it's anti-Christian to get a vaccine. Well, okay, mm-hmm. then I'm not going to, right? So that, like that, that is what I find dangerous. And that's what I find heartbreaking yeah. because that person doesn't have spiritual freedom. They're just now like, they're completely subordinated into a whole nother um, doctrine dogma yeah a whole nother thing that is actually oppressing them yeah that's so interesting yeah it's also i think maybe goes back to your idea of i mean the the merits of your no phone world no (laughs) social media world is i think a lot of the people who are caught up in some of these politicized fights about things like vaccines and masks you know if they had one-on-one conversations with somebody was like you know i lost somebody to this and it's been tough for me and i didn't believe it at first it's one of those things that those conversations were actually happening one-on-one instead of through facebook or you know through whatever news source they might be getting yeah Yeah. Yeah. then maybe so maybe there that's a point one for grace's uh no technology world Um, yeah i agree face-to-face is oftentimes better like even like um like challenging conversations, you know, mm-hmm. like all of us um, have relationships, different kinds of relationships with all different kinds of people. And therefore um, like tension and conflict and disagreements will arise. Mm-hmm. But in this parasocial kind of uh, relationship maintenance, it becomes far easier to just be like, well, okay, block, delete, unfollow, mm-hmm. dismiss, get out, you know? And, rather than do that it's like well what if you guys just looked at each other and just said to each other like well when i heard this this is how i felt maybe that wasn't your intention but that's how it came off but i understand now that you're explaining your part like those kinds of conversations are easier to have in face to face i think Mm -hmm. but i think the parasocial kind of world because it's so easy to just get rid of people having that face-to-face conversation the thought of it it becomes more scary for mm-hmm. for people you know because it's like it was so easy to just get rid of them 
and just pretend like they don't exist anymore. Not even social media, but even phones. Be like, yeah. I just delete or block their number and they're gone, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, but what are you losing? What other things are you losing? Not just, you know, not, not only on their end, but for yourself, you know, potentially another, uh, a skill, another communication skill, you know, like another, um, one more door for compassion, you know, one more layer of understanding a different perspective now, you know, like so much loss is happening out of that. And, um, yeah, like, Honestly, it saddens me more than anything. Like, I don't get mad about it. I just get really brokenhearted about it. Yeah, it is sad too, because I mean, and I should know that I'd probably guilty of this, uh, even just in what I've said so far. But I think oftentimes also because of this sort of this mentality, uh, we often are judging people not based on who they are, but on this like imagined type. Because, um, you know, an example of this is like, I feel like, you know gen z the youngins these days like the people yeah. in my classes people see them as like this implacable woke mob that is going to cancel <laughs> you right out the gate um and yeah. maybe that's true to an extent but i also feel like there's much more just based on the classes i've taught there's much more nuance there you know there's yeah. much more yeah. flexibility that even yeah. if that might be the dominant conversation yeah people understand that there are gray areas and whatnot and so yeah. it's just yeah it's again another idea i think in which we're being when algorithms are forcing us to the most extreme versions of ourselves <laughs> and so that we're only aware <laughs> of the most extreme version of the person that we don't agree with so um i love yeah, that you know, algorithms yeah. that take us to the most extreme versions of ourselves that's beautiful and i agree i think these uh, gen zers who are framed as the woke mob i think what we also need to understand is they're terrified of mm -hmm. themselves and what they're capable of onto themselves mm -hmm. they're afraid of getting canceled do you know mm -hmm. what i'm saying yeah like they're terrified and they're always walking on eggshells because they don't ever, ever, ever want to say potentially the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. That is stressful as hell to be around. I feel like young people should be allowed to make as many mistakes as it takes for them to learn how to really become a genuinely good person. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And like young people aren't just born knowing everything being right and true. Young people are reacting to what was already there, mm -hmm. right? Like whatever our parents' generation put put down for us, millennials reacted to and built. And now the Gen Zers are reacting to that. So it's like, it's not when we look at them, we can't just only look at them. We have to see ourselves, our parents' generation, their parents' generation, and see the terror and fear that they live in because of this construct that we built around them, which is yelling and screaming and traumatizing other fellow liberals. Mm -hmm. And that shit needs to fucking stop. I really want to, like, as a professor, create more room and space, breathing room for them to literally be, to, for them to know and be like, you can make mistakes here. What like, quote unquote mistakes, you know, you can be yourselves here. It's okay. I'm not going to lash out on you. I'm not going to let anybody in this room lash out on one another. It's okay for you to try out an idea that you feel like, oh, is this 
risky. If it's risky, be brave. Go ahead. Give it a shot. Let's hear it. You know, because even like these potentially, you know, what people might consider as, well, that's fucked up or that's crazy. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure there is a tiny morsel of a good idea in that bigger idea that they're presenting right now that we can use for a productive conversation. I know that to be true. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I want to. I want to bring more attention to that, the fear that they live in. I feel like that's what woke culture is right now, is it's motivated by fear. And mm-hmm. that's not woke. That's just a reaction. It's yeah. not wokeness. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think it's so true because about what you say about walking on eggshells and that fear, because um, I think implicitly, uh, not not specifically with you, but just any idea of like going onto a live recorded interview, um, I think that was always be in the back of my mind, like, oh, what if I say something? Because you're always seeing these headlines these days of something someone said in a podcast five years ago gets them removed from such and such. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, and, and honestly, I have to admit, most of the times when that happens to somebody, I'm like, yeah, it's probably true that they probably should have been removed for that. But I think it's different in a space, especially academia with younger people who are not public figures. They, they shouldn't have to have that same anxiety, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, they shouldn't because yeah. you're okay, and even you shouldn't have that anxiety because you're not a politician. You know I, I know. Saying? For you're sure. not. Mm-hmm. You're not the president of the United States. Like, who? Yet? No, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. If, I have if no. If you interest. ran for president, I would vote for you. Well, thank but, you. Uh, it's it's like, you know, get a grip, man. You know, you're just a person. The only way to see oneself as a person is if you see other people as persons mm-hmm. like you know for instance this was like not that long ago maybe a year ago now remember that young black woman who became an editor of was it cosmo or vogue like she was like one of the youngest editors ever to become mm. this editor of a major magazine and because of some racist thing that she tweeted when she was a teenager she lost that job. Oh, yes, I remember hearing about this. Publicly yeah. mm-hmm. shamed. I want to ask how much re- how many regressive steps are we taking by doing that? Mm-hmm. She was a teenager. This was years ago. It's not who she is now. Is our past self who we are right now? It's not. The fact is it's not. The fact is we're always changing constantly on a moment by moment basis i mean that's why people say be present you know i don't know i i found that to be extremely saddening because like doing that it gives more power to the other side honestly you know and what that means is we need to be more compassionate when it comes to the the other side people who make mistakes like that you know it's like okay well that was their past that's not who they are now let me just look at who they are now, what they're doing now. Do I disagree with what they're doing now? No? Okay, then I'm, it's, it's okay, actually. You know? Yeah. And how do you, quote unquote, forgive that? As if forgiveness is even a thing, like as if it's possible, you know? How do you, quote unquote, forgive that? Well, do I forgive myself for my past mistakes? Do I alleviate myself or do I let, do I let myself off the hook for the mistakes that I made in the past? It starts with that, you know, mm-hmm. like that's the thing I talk about the most on this podcast is the only way to stop 
criticizing and judging others for what they do is once I stop doing it to myself. The only mm. way that I'm going to be little more loose and lax with others and their mistakes is once I forgive myself for my own mistakes. It it's never only external. It's always to it's physics, right? It's two it always goes both ways. And what okay, what's the fucking answer to that? You know, it's like you got to work on your fucking self. So my point is mind your business. <laughs> it's literally that's like mind your own fucking business. And I'm like, okay, Grace, that's a little aggressive. How do you say it in a nicer way? How do you how do you say it in a nicer way? And the nicer way is your business needs tending to, and the only mm -hmm. person who could tend to it is yourself. Right? Yeah. It's like once I take care of myself and everything's cool, only then will everything around me be cool. Only then will I be able to go out and help others be cool. As long as I'm not cool, I can't do it the other way. I put that in my teaching statement too. Like in the mm. last paragraph, I'm like, the only way that I could actually be a good teacher to them is if I know that I'm taking care of myself. So this is how I take care of myself. And I wrote out what I take, what I do to take care of myself. And it's like, I feel like a lot of professors lack that adjuncts, you know, lecturers lack that because they're so fucking busy and mm -hmm. they're so fucking, you know, like, it's like deadlines and it's like syllabi quizzes grading ah no time you know it's like well make it possible for us man we want to be good teachers we want to be good leaders we want to really nurture and nourish these young minds and put them out into the world not as angry people but as compassionate people who understand the reality of what the fuck is going on and who want to go out and do good who want to do the right thing not be motivated and driven by only fear because if they do that they can go in all different kinds of fucking direction. That's chaos. That's anarchy, you know? But I yeah. feel like that's what our institutions are doing right now. It's kind of interesting that you described sort of your philosophy in terms of like taking care of yourself, because I feel like with me, it's, um, I think in some ways it's different because I think in some ways I allow, like, I just talked about sort of the way in which people are more complicated, there's more mm -hmm. nuance and stuff like that. Yeah. I feel like in some ways I'm harder. Yeah, maybe it's side of the flip side of what you're saying. I'm harder on myself. Like yeah. I'm, I allow other people certain affordances that I wouldn't allow myself. That I hold myself to this uh, like absurd standard. And so, like when I go to therapy, like one of the main lines I always hear from my therapist is "Be kind to yourself." Um, and I think yeah. that's a very common thing about anxious people is that yeah. even in a logical span, if they took a step back, if they made a mistake, and yeah. if somebody else made that mistake, they'd be like, oh, that's not a big deal, who cares? But right. then when you make that mistake, it's like, well, how could I have made this mistake? And yeah, you know, it's like, um, yeah, I mean, and then that's, you know, that's, I mean, that's, I think very much, I mean, I have obsessive compulsive disorder, and I think that's very much yeah. that, like, you're obsessing yeah. over, like, stupid yeah. things like, like, this thing that you might have dropped on the ground, and it's, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of interesting that I think we both have a similar they're like two sides of the same dip coin, but yeah, yeah the edit, I have to say the editor, the thing about that too. And the thing I always like to stress with my students, especially in this television and race in America class that we're taking sure. teaching, yeah. is that um, sometimes when things happen like that, it's not because the company made the decision that that was the right thing to do, right? but because that was the thing that would stop the publicity. Right. Uh, in some ways, it's from more the it's more um, American business impulse to protect itself. Um, yeah. And uh, and it's very similar just to see in terms of the evolution of 
perspectives on like you know kneeling during football yeah. games you know Colin yeah. Kaepernick did it and he was like pers yeah. persona non grata nowadays yeah. like Nike commercials have you know uh-huh talking about a Black Lives Matter and stuff it's just uh-huh it's just yeah it's always it's I always try to stress to my students like even though it looks like oh this happened because this is justice it maybe it was justice to where to, to certain people and then and maybe sometimes those things need to happen but usually the business does it because it's better for business exactly um, which is exactly. and then and then people then think though oh they did it because they were committed morally and then like that's no eh, that's usually never. Not the case. <laughs> never it's never ever ever the case yeah I was reading this book called Neoliberal Feminism, and it's about that. I mean, but that's what's happening with Black Lives Matter right now. It's like these movements get commodified by corporations. Mm -hmm. They become corporatized. As soon as that happens, <laughs> like, it's gone. As soon as that that becomes acquired by a corporation, it, it's gone. Yeah, It's like it's no longer the point. The, the the essence of that purpose is gone. Why? Because now it's tied to capitalistic profits profit motivation and once profit motivation comes in that thing dies because it's like think about why did slavery begin because of profit motivation so it doesn't fucking work they can't mm -hmm. ever work together you know i that's mm -hmm. why yeah we just need to go i i've been re-watching fight club over and over again <laughs> <laughs> fight club are you saying we need a fight club world wait what's what is your what are you what... I, or are you thinking about the end with the with the credit card companies? Like, wh where is this coming? Well, where are you going with this? Well, every, I, first of all, it's a great movie. I don't. Oh, care it is. What I love. I love that movie. It's such a good movie, and I yeah, just find. I haven't comfort. seen it in a while, but I love it. Mm -hmm. Oh, revisit it, revisit it. Okay. I I just enjoy the movie because it's like a tasty movie. I just enjoy mm. everything about it. I love the lighting, like that blue green hue it has. I love. I love Helena Bonham Carter. She's so good oh, in yeah, that movie. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, Edward Norton's amazing in that movie. Brad Pitt is hot in that movie. Like <laughs> Jared Leto gets his face fucked up in that movie. Jared Leto's know? in that movie? Yes. Are you kidding I, me? Jared Leto is one of those people that I don't think I realized he existed until like Dallas <laughs> Buyers Club. But then I realized he's been around all along. It's kind of like all the plot along. twist. Jared Leto was there all along. Um, I mean, because I also didn't yeah. watch. Um, I recently watched all of My So Called Life. Oh. Uh, he's and he's the main love interest. Yeah, in yeah, My so -called yeah. Life. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and so, wow. but yeah, oh wow, I, I'll have to see. Jared you got Leto. Yeah. you got now. You got to watch it with a whole new lens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have well, you seen Jared I, Leto in the House of Gucci trailer? Okay, I have not seen the trailer. I don't want to see any trailers. I just want to go and experience the movie. Oh, okay. because the casting is just so amazing that I'm just mm. like, I just gotta walk in and let it happen. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I already bought a ticket to go see Licorice Pizza. Ooh, I just saw. Yeah, yeah, I saw the trailer yeah. for that ahead of. I, I I'm curious. Have you been going to the movies pretty regularly? Back like the not movie theater? Really. Not okay. really. I went to see three movies d this past year to see mm. movies so i went to see spencer recent most recently oh the pablo lorraine yeah. film right yeah. it's funny because we you... saw we i haven't seen it yet we saw neruda yeah. together i think um did we i think we did i don't remember anything about it uh yeah we saw uh, i'm pretty sure we saw it together at the it was at the lamley royal 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't remember the movie that well either, but I remember I don't remember a single right. thing about that movie. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> it rings a bell. You and I watched a lot of movies together. We watched The Square, right? Oh yes. Yes. I love that movie. Yeah, that <laughs> I love that filmmaker. So you saw Spencer, okay. I saw Spencer. I saw what else did I see? Oh, I saw um Titan. Oh, okay. I haven't seen that. I, I know somebody uh I'm not going to say who it is because I don't want to like embarrass them, but I know I'll I'll tell you offline somebody we both know who like basically almost blacked out during that movie. Like they almost like it was too intense and they almost like they had to like leave halfway through. Like they almost passed out. It was overwhelming. They they semi passed out or something. It was a sensory enriched movie. It's very, Mm. very like it's very intense, but what a movie. I mean, I you like you you kind of like sensory films. Like, I mean, you yeah. like, you love Mulholland Drive. You mm-hmm. would love this movie. I do want to love, see it. Love this movie. I I recommend seeing it in theaters if you're comfortable with it. Um, because mm-hmm. it's not a popular film, so there's like hardly anybody in the movie theater. But I saw Titan. Uh, I, I know Spencer I saw one Titan. more thing. I can't remember what's the other movie that I saw, but oh, uh, French Connection. The Wes Anderson movie. Oh, French Dispatch. French Dispatch. Yes. <laughs> French Connection. Yeah, I was no, like, no, no. You saw a, a revival of Gene Hackman <laughs> and, with William Friedkin, which is cool. That's a great movie. French but, um, Dispatch. Yeah, I saw French Dispatch. Uh, I I used to be really into Wes Anderson. Um, and I remember, <laughs> I still remember at in college, I yeah. wrote a review for Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, and it was a very negative review, and okay. I got eaten alive in the comments. People were like, oh, I, shit. "Like, I, people like comments like, have you no sense of joy?" <laughs> yeah, my, like people would tell say that to me. Um, wow. I'll also say that was that screening was pretty cool because that was at Northwestern, and I had to go all the way to downtown Chicago. Roger Ebert was in the theater. Oh, um, that's so cool. I mean, I didn't get to interact with him, but uh, yeah. he was there. I think A.O. Scott, I think, was still based in Chicago. At wow. That time at the movies. so Big um, time boys when it comes yeah. to film reviews. Those are like the the big ones. Them and yeah. like Manola Dargis. It's like those are the three, the big three. Well, now it's big two because Ebert is no longer with us. But, but um, yeah. It's so funny because I think yeah. the movies that we saw in theaters over the past yeah. year yeah. speak to how different we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What did you see? Let me. Hear so I've saw. only seen three movies. I mean, part of it is it is an anxiety thing. I'd like yeah. for me, it's like it's I, I just the pandemic. Yeah, uh, like yeah, I used to go real. like almost like fifty times a year back back when True we were, like grad students. Yeah. But now I I went like three times. But yeah. it's completely different things. I yeah. saw F nine, the Fast Saga. Okay. I saw that because, well, I was actually invited because um, the Bruin Film Society and undergrad student group had me interview Justin Lin over Zoom uh, earlier this year. And so then Ooh. when they had tickets, they, a lot, they asked me, and which was exciting. He, he wasn't cool. at the screening, but um, yeah. both F9, uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I literally just saw No Time to Die, the new James Bond film. Because oh, it's wow. funny, our our sets of films couldn't yeah. be more different. But I think it's because well, you you have a big appreciation for blockbuster films. You yeah. know, like the the franchise, like the Fast and Furious one, and like you know, James Bond films. Like I think you have an appreciation for them. Um, whereas, like, yeah, I just never, 
I don't think I watched a single James Bond movie from beginning to end. Mm. Uh, with the Marvel stuff, like I am into it, but uh, I never got on the Shang Chi train. I want to see Eternals though. That I want to see. I, that's probably next on my list. But yeah. I also another weird coincidence that um, I realized is that all three films I saw were directed by Asian Americans. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, that is yeah. dope. I like that. Justin Lin, uh, uh, Destin, Daniel Critton, and um, uh, Carrie uh, Fukunaga. Yeah. Oh, I love Carrie Fukunaga. Um, yeah, that's that's dope. I love that there are so many more Asian American directors out there making big time films. I think that's that's good. That's a good thing. That's very much yeah. a good thing. And Chloe Zhao. Yeah, it's a big year for <sighs> yeah. Asian Americans directing yeah hollywood blockbusters even though she I, got eaten alive by critics but um it's okay i mean whenever yeah. a woman directs one of those like big superhero movies she always gets eaten alive like when, oh, ava, Duver yeah. when ava duvernay mm -hmm. directed that that big blockbuster film she got oh, eaten wrinkle alive. in time mm -hmm. yeah, yeah yeah it's like um give them a fucking break you know like do you think the other mo marvel movies that people made are fucking fabulous it's like they all had issues <laughs> Every single one yes, of them because yes. they're blockbuster movies. Okay, it's not her fault, FYI. You know, yeah. Um, but women always get it the most because they don't give them opportunities. Particular. Yeah, they don't. They don't. They don't give them opportunities, and it's like once they give them, like, you better not fuck this up. All this pressure, all this. You know, it's so fucking stupid. Uh, we talked about this in my television class this semester because we watched All American Girl. Um, and this is a good example of you know. If you have, I, I feel like the the line was that this was the one Asian American family sitcom in primetime. And then yeah. because it wasn't well received, we didn't see one for like a couple decades. Um, yeah. it's, it's always that level of scrutiny on the first or the firsts. Um, the pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Margaret Cho got it from every single side imaginable. Mm. Not just yes. Asian Americans. I mean, fucking, okay. Jeff Yang, Jeff Yang, uh, Hudson Yang's father, fresh off the boat. Jeff Yang's mm -hmm. a journalist. Jeff Yang used to write for the Village Voice. Okay, mm. I read his review of All American Girl in the nineties. Whoa, I didn't realize that. Okay, scathing review. Fucking Oof. tore her a new one. All right, and um, you know, it's like, it's like it's impossible for her to quote unquote do the right thing because nobody in the industry is letting her be herself mm -hmm. nobody else in that casting was korean you know what i'm saying yeah. mm -hmm. none of the writers none of the directors were korean how the fuck do they expect her to do anything right when everything is wrong and out mm -hmm. of her control but who's the face margaret cho so she gets yeah. all she gets the brunt of it it's not none of it is fair and that's why it's like when the when these people write these uh comments in your variety review even the variety review itself it's like these are just people's opinions mm -hmm. and so why get mad at them you know yeah. like that's how i feel about it these days I, i'm just like they're just opinions you know and at the yeah. end of the day nobody's opinion really matters you know, mm -hmm. it just doesn't. It doesn't. So whatever. Um, but the reason why I was talking about Fight Club earlier. Oh, yeah, we, we we veered off. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, no, it's like, just to finish the thought. It's because. Yes, no, uh, I wanted to hear that. Yes, I wanted to hear that. It's a very psychedelic film. 
And Ooh, okay. it's also a very Buddhist film. It talks about interesting. It talks about ego death. It talks about uh, letting go. But of course, it contradicts that later when Brad Pitt's uh, character becomes too like insane, you know. Mm-hmm. But like the you know the driving scene when they're like arguing and it's raining, and then mm-hmm. like Brad Pitt's like telling Edward Norton to just let go of the wheel so they could just let the car swerve off and crash. Like that conversation is such a Buddhist conversation about mm. letting go and really coming to terms with the fact that you're gonna die and you have no control over that reality. So really let go. Like when people bark at one another and tweet and opinionate and da da da, I feel like all of that is just a reaction to this, this. I don't know, this this alarm bell that's going off in us at all times, which is like we're faced with our mortality and we just can't mm-hmm. deal. And so we're always yelling and it's like, but we, we need a reason and we need a, a target. So it just ends up becoming Twitter. It ends up becoming comment box. It ends up becoming reviews or whatever, you know, arguments in the street, whatever. But it's like, just fucking come to terms with the fact that you don't have any control over that you know and actually you actually have no control over your life really you know it's just like yeah it can it can end at any time um just focus on what you can do you know do you really want to be a good person okay just go and be that you know this kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier it's like the uc system right now instead of changing the whole thing they're just plugging holes mm-hmm. and that's what cancel culture is it's plugging holes it's not mm. actually changing anything i think it's that's a very good point yeah yeah, and there's only more sadness there. Um, but let me ask you, why are you no longer a fan of Wes Anderson? Is it because of Fantastic Mr. Fox? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't say I'm no longer a fan of his. Um, I'm oh, okay. just not as boldly enthusiastic as I am, as I used to be. Uh, um, I think, I mean, this Fantastic Mr. Fox, I just I remember not liking it very much. Mm-hmm. And then I never saw Isle of Dogs because it just looked kind of racist. Um, I, I'll huh. see it someday. It just didn't look appealing huh. to me. It wasn't um, racist. I mean, that's my position on it. It wasn't mm-hmm. racist. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, just in terms of, I think, like, I prefer his earlier work. Because I know some people yeah. feel very strong that, like, yeah, that, like, Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel are, like, his, like, uh, his his masterworks. They are um, great. Yeah. I do like both of those movies, but yeah. I prefer, like, Rushmore, Royal Tannenbaum. Oh, Rushmore's so good. Royal Tannenbaum's is so good. I watch Royal Tannenbaum's every single holiday season. Cause oh. It's, it's interesting. I'm learning about great... your go-to movies. I don't yeah. really watch movies that really? much. Really? But... That's surprising. Yeah. Are you serious? Like, how many the... times have you seen Mulholland Drive? Oh, that's one. We'll see that one. So the, here's here's the exception to that. The only yeah. time, the main time in which I tend to rewatch films is when I'm watching it with somebody. Oh, like where I like we'll be like we want to watch a movie and then we'll watch that and like I'm we're trying to share it with somebody. Got it's it. very rare for me on my own to 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 repeatedly visit a movie. At least these days. When I was a kid, yeah, I was much more common. But yeah. yeah. I don't know oh, why. Interesting. Just... Yeah, why not? Explore that, man. Because don't you think like revisiting a film that you love and finding more about it? Because like a film is rich. There's a lot in there, and there's a mm. lot that we miss in the first take. And to like, you know, again, like 
when I was rewatching Fight Club a few weeks ago, I was like seeing it from a whole nother perspective. I was like, oh, this is like a Buddhist film. This is like a psychedelic film. This is like, it's got all these other layers I haven't seen before when I was, when I first saw it when I was 15 years old, you know? So it, it, it's for me, like um, rewatching a movie is like always a whole new experience for me. And I revisit movies I love over and over again all the time. Like the reason why I asked you about uh, Wes Anderson, I was rewatching uh, Juliet of the Spirits. Julietta of the Spirits. Oh, the Fellini, the Fellini the, film, the Fellini yeah. color film. Uh-huh. So, like, I'm a big fan of Fellini. I think you uh-huh. already know. I love that film. And it, that's such a beautiful movie. Like, it's his first color film, right? Like his first film in color. I think you're right. Ex- yeah. The only thing I can think of maybe is there was a short or one of his anthology films he did something before them i can't remember for sure yeah yeah like he he his films are they tend to be black and white this is a color film and it's with his wife who we haven't Mm -hmm. seen in in several like in a while with his films and it is this one and um there were so many scenes in that movie that were like i was like oh wes anderson was inspired by this scene it was like Mm -hmm. very very clear do you know what i'm saying like i was like this like fucking Wes Anderson just ripped this right out of Fellini's movie. There were so many moments like that when I was rewatching this. Um, but yeah, you know, with uh, French Dispatch, I didn't really love it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was just, yeah, that was just about my, that was just my next question. I was curious yeah. to see how you felt about it. Cause... I think the reason why people love Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel is because that was his sweet spot in terms of where he was at in his career. Like he has enough respect and credibility to ask for a budget that he can actually work with, with Mm -hmm. comfort. And he's at a respectable level where he could literally ask anybody to be in his movies. Mm -hmm. And he did like, like Ray Fiennes is a huge fucking star. He he got him. And so um, like, I think those two movies came out at that time Mm -hmm. with this movie. He's still at that level, but it now it's too much. It's too much because his scale is more like Grand Budapest and uh, Moonrise Kingdom level. Like that's where it should be contained at, like mm-hmm. when it comes to his work. But now his money scale and his celebrity scale is like bloated up, and he just crammed in literally every single fucking starlet into that movie and it's three movies it's got three separate storylines going in three Mm. different acts and it has another storyline through line going through it so it's like too much it's like overload and i was like yeah i can't appreciate all the small things in his movies like like it like i tend to you know because like his art direction his production design is so amazing and um like his writing ability i think is also great the Mm -hmm. way he the way he casts is also very unique and how he works with his actors i think is also very unique you know and it was like hard for me to give it my focus my full attention to all those small nuances because it was just so it was too much and so um yeah like french dispatch was a bit lost on me personally that's interesting yeah i feel like it's like there are a handful of directors who have gotten like um like wes anderson has become too wes andersony <laughs> quentin quentin tarantino might have become too quentin tarantino yeah tarantino-y. it's yeah. like um yeah i mean I, I still like i mean like both of them like I, they, oh they yeah both do stuff that i like yeah but, um, yeah I mean, I'm always well, going to respect them. It's just, you know. Yeah. 
I'm starting to see the problem of how money like can it can you know water down the artistry like mm-hmm. uh and again it goes back to this question of choice is that you can say no wes <laughs> yes yeah i think it's it, it's the power of having somebody to tell you no to i mean like i mean i mean i guess it's like why oh. having good collaborators is a good thing uh, yeah just, uh, the power or maybe the privilege of having yeah. somebody you trust and whose words you really trust and know to for them to be like no and for them for you to go in okay yeah 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 that's a good point huh. um are there any korean dramas that you, you watch or that you're into um let's see i did i have now watched one episode of squid game um <laughs> so i have stepped closer to social relevance by doing so um <laughs> Yeah, um, I I think the last time I talked to you, the the problem is just like uh, I I sometimes will start things and then not finish them when it comes to yeah. TV. Yeah. Uh, so I I like I think I, I told you last time I'm about halfway through Crash Landing on You, which I love. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. but then yeah. just just things got, got busy. But the the reason why I wanted to watch Squid Game is because. I'm teaching that horror in East Asian cinemas class yeah. next next quarter, and I feel oh, like exciting. the the students that will be inclined to take that class will have definitely seen Squid Game. So I feel like if I oh, haven't yeah. seen Squid Game, they'll be like, yeah. "What's this? What's this loser? <laughs> Why do we have to trust what he says? He hasn't seen Squid Game. Even <laughs> even, even uh, my random relative has seen Squid Game. Yeah, um, it's yeah. become that. It's become like the Godfather, you know, yeah. like or Sopranos. It's like it's like homework for you to live you in like society. It? How how do you feel about Squid Game? I loved it. I loved Squid Game. When I saw mm-hmm. it, I was like, this is super entertaining. <laughs> I was like, I am entertained the whole time. You know, it was like one of those. And for me, like the biggest drive was I already knew the filmmakers other movies. And oh, like okay. I was like into what he was trying to do. And I am a big fan of Yi Jung Jae, the actor, the lead. Mm-hmm. Like growing up, he was like the hot stud, like the hot stud, you know, mm. the guy. And he was playing a loser <laughs> in a TV show. Yeah, like yeah. Yi Jung Jae doesn't do TV. Like he does films, like Korean cinema. That's what he's known for. He very rarely does tv and when he does do tv he plays like a prim proper hot stud and so i was just shocked to see him play like this loserish guy and i just wanted to see like oh how's he flexing his acting muscles here you know like that was really he was really the driving force for me and i think that's how most koreans feel for for them it's like they want to go see you know Mm -hmm. um it's really funny because i I remember i'm pretty sure it was squid game i think it was also the lead actor you're uh you're talking about you know, in terms of journalists asking stupid questions about things that they don't understand. I don't know if you yeah. saw recently, I think it was him on the on a red carpet and then someone asked him like, what's it like now? Like not, you know, where people are recognizing you all the time. And and, and I think I think it was like, his response was something effective like, well, I'm actually just already very popular in Korea. It just maybe internationally now people recognize who I am, but like. Yeah, not um, only in Korea, but like all of Asia. Like yeah, yeah. it's. That's such an Americentric, Hollywood-centric mm-hmm. question, and a lot of journalists were asking me that shit too. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, "Why is Squid Game such a popular?" I was like, "Did you see the show? It's really fucking good." <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, like, 
why don't you question that when it comes to shows like The Sopranos? It's like everybody around the world saw Breaking Bad. Why? It's a really fucking good show. That's why. But they're like, oh, well, it's Hollywood. So yeah, duh. But is it? Oh, did you know that it's actually possible to come up with good shit outside of Hollywood? And that it actually has been happening for a really long time, all the time. You know, like I always threw that back at journalists. I was like, I was like, um, I rewatch Fellini films all the time, and that's not in English. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's an old movie. What do you, you know, it's because it, it comes from this mentality like, well, it's impossible for these fucking Asians to possibly come up with anything good, you know? Yeah. Well, I think not, I'm not, not to defend the people because I didn't hear the specific question. So I do think sometimes people are curious of because American culture is so American centric. When something breaks through, it is notable. It's like, why would this particular thing break through? Um, so maybe it's a question about how insular we are to begin with. But I think it, it depends on how the question was asked. Because there is that sort of, there's a difference between like yeah. being respectful of how it broke into um, this closed off system. But then there's always like, um, how could they have made this? You know, there's a yeah. different way. There are different ways to ask the same question that I yeah. think have different connotations. Um, You're probably right. Yeah. 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 I mean, what other shows have broken through like that? I guess. I mean, when it comes to TV, yeah, international television. Very rare. I don't think it's really happened before. I yeah, mean, I don't. Before, I can't think of it either. I think. I think the big part of it is because Netflix is a global phenomenon. Um, yeah. Because it acquires content from you know a lot of different. It's uh, a conglomerate. Industries. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to in the past, TV used to be very localized. And then yeah. now we're at this moment where things can circulate. It's globalized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's, it's a, big... a bunch of different factors. You're right. You're right. Yeah. It's like it's a combination of I think the technology is allowing for it. But then also I think there is this interest in Korean culture and content more broadly. And so it's like this confluence, it's this, it's a confluence of factors where yes. this became the one now. Yes. It's like it's like Squid Game was like the culmination act or whatever like everything was kind of aligned and this was like it really struck when the iron was hot and it's just blown up to be this huge thing yeah that's one of the things i talk about those holiday in in uh when we talked about south korean horror but how like how things get swept up in these kind of reductive ways where i think it is true that there is this sort of this appreciation of you know korean culture that is pretty specific to south korea but you see these headlines that are like bts parasite and squid game korea is breaking through <laughs> i'm like these are all very different things i, I mean very even, different yes yeah. yeah even if there might be a shared interest in, in or yeah. overlap in viewership it is it's always interesting how the mediums are different you know it's yeah. like it's music film and tv you know uh different different auteurs you know different come on um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the way of, uh, that kind of cheap journalism, right? Like the, the mm-hmm. fast journalism. Yeah. That's how they function. It's um, also, um, optimized for search engines. Cause then you can Google exactly, Squid Game and then it pops exactly. up or BTS and then it's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And all of that does kind of like water shit down and whatever. Um, anyway. Todd, I'm so happy that we got to catch up like this. Thank you. Yeah, for it was great. Yeah, yes, right. Was this wasn't scary, right? This yes. was actually fun. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It had yeah. to, be, to be clear. So, yeah. 
uh, you're referring to the fact that I was, I uh, said I was nervous. It had nothing to do with you particular. Yeah, I, I just, know, I know. I, I just yeah. have, I have like extreme public speaking anxiety, which yeah, is a yeah. great thing for a lecturer. Yeah, um, that's exactly, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, you're not I, the only one. A lot of um, academics are very, very hesitant uh, to get on podcasts and talk, like quite a few of them. And it's always for the exact same reason. Yeah, mm, it's like they don't, yeah. Uh, but no, thank you for, you know, trusting me enough to fight Absolutely. through that anxiety and doing this. And, you know, it was nice to catch up and I loved your insights on things. So I appreciate all of that. Thank you. All right. All right. See you soon. So, Nick, mm -hmm. yep. I'm going to ask you some uh, series of questions, you know, okay. like what if scenarios. All right. And you just have to answer what you would do if you were in that scenario. All right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very easy. All right. Let's say you're a college girl. Mm -hmm. um, you go to a pretty prestigious school, engineering, computer engineering program. There is this baseball player, college baseball player. He's starting to rise. Like he's a pitcher. He's like a rising star. Okay. okay. He has the hots for you. All right. But you have feelings for this guy who's in medical school. He's, he's a nobody. His, his, his nickname's Garbage. Everybody calls him Garbage. Okay. Because he's so disgusted. Does he smell? He, sometimes. I mean, okay. he, he's, like, he's not very hygienic. Alright. Right? But you have feelings for this guy. But this baseball player guy, he's like really into it. He's asking him, mm -hmm. what, what do you do? Um, I would go with the baseball player until he needed Tommy John surgery, and then I had to spend all day with him and like wipe his ass and stuff. And I don't want any part of that. And then go to the medical student, and then ask the medical student to like help with the baseball player's medical issues. Really hit on the medical students. So you'd uh, do both of them, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Depending on the okay. yeah. I like it. You're a little slut. It's good. Pretty much. Yeah, if I was a girl. <laughs> Okay, 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 let's just say, you're born in the south, all right? All right. But this is like the city. It's like urban. Like Atlanta? Like LA, all right? Okay. Like, you're like in a metropolitan city now. Mm -hmm. But the place where you were born, it, it was also technically a city. But all these other college kids keep calling you like a bumfuck country chick. Yeah. What, do you, what do you do? What do I do? Yeah. Just let them keep thinking that and lean into it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, you like play up my accent, make me sound really dumb, so I surprise them. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's like sticks and stones. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want I just want the lowest expectations for myself, ah. and then and then when I do something smart or progressive, yeah. I look amazing. Yeah. I look like an amazing person from the south. Blow them out of the water. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Subvert their expectations. Oh. All right. Let's say that you uh, you and this doctor guy. All right. You started dating. All right. But as soon as you start dating, right, you get shipped away to Australia to work a job. Okay. What kind of job? Like computer or something. <laughs> computer engineering or something. Mm -hmm. All right. You're a smart chick. And the economy is terrible. Like fucking recession, everything's shit. Okay? Yeah, right. And your uh, boyfriend, doctor guy, very, very busy all the time. Always on call. And you're very, very busy in Australia. It's long distance kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you guys haven't really spoken in a couple months. What do you do? What do I do? Yeah. Uh, keep not speaking and just do whatever I want to do in Australia. Because wow. it's... Well, forwards both ways. Yeah. He, why isn't he contacting me? That's a good point. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Okay, you'll let it fizzle out. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Just play my options in Australia. Not good. See what's out there. Wow. Any, any dumb
undies that I want to wanna get with. Play off the slut. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Nick.